This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. You guys ever go somewhere and know like from the moment you arrive that you just didn't belong, right? That you were not welcome there. Kind of like a scene from an old Western, you know, where like you'd walk into the saloon and you walk through the doors and then everything immediately comes to a screeching halt, right? The music stops, the piano player is like, and the conversation stops and, and like all the eyes are fixated on you in that ever silent room. Or, uh, or maybe that Sesame Street song, uh, that one that goes, one of these things is not like the other, one of these things just doesn't belong. I can't not sing it. Um, but what you know to be true is like that thing that doesn't belong, it's you, isn't it? But see, when you don't, when you don't look enough like the group, and when you don't fall in line enough with the group, like you're kept out of the group, aren't you? And that not only happens in groups out in the world, that also happens here in the church, doesn't it? We're, we're really good at making people feel unwelcome, at making people feel like they're not like the others, like they just don't belong, making the other feel like an outsider. Sometimes we do that actively in the things that we say and the things that we do. Sometimes we do that passively simply by not acknowledging someone's presence. And that's why one of the phrases that we have here, if you remember, it's called uh, new to you. And you'll know that someone is new to you if you don't know their name or you don't remember their name. And I don't care if you've asked their name 25 times. If you don't know or remember their name, they're new to you. And so my encouragement to each one of us, each one of you, is every Sunday, meet someone new to you, right? This is your home. We are your family. Be a, you are a host to our guests. Meet someone new to you. Because here's the thing, though. When we don't do that, when we ignore those that are new, when we pass them by, and when we let others that are too different from us know their difference, we, we allow our differences to divide us. And when we allow our differences to divide us, what we do is rather than pointing people to Jesus, we're pushing people away from Jesus, aren't we? We're doing the exact opposite of what we've been called to do. And in some sense, that's essentially what was happening in the churches in Galatia and why Paul wrote this letter that we're looking at in our series, What Makes Us Family. See, Paul, he planted these churches preaching a, a gospel of, of God's grace, right? That you are accepted by God, that you are included in his family by nothing other than faith in Jesus Christ. But not long after Paul left, some Jewish Christians came in and they were like, yeah, that Paul guy, he, he got it wrong. That's not actually true. Uh, faith is good, but faith isn't enough. You also, you also need to look more like us, right? You need to adopt our cultural habits, and you need to line up with us. There's some rules that you have to follow in order to be accepted into God's family. And so Paul wrote this letter, right, reminding them at the end of chapter 2 that a person is not justified, a person is not accepted by God or included in his family by works of the law, right, by what you do, but through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. And that is a significant claim that Paul is making, one that he supports with evidence throughout this middle section of the letter in chapters 3 and 4 that we're looking at now. And we began reflecting on our story of faith, right? Uh, 
our own experiences. And then we were reflecting on faith in the Old Testament, looking at the life of Abraham. And last week, we were reflecting on our misunderstanding of the Mosaic Law and its relationship to God's covenant promises. And we're going to continue this morning by reflecting on our union in Christ. And that's the title of our sermon this morning, Reflecting on Our Union in Christ. And yet again, Paul is going to beat this same nail one more time that our faith in Jesus Christ is what makes us family, right? Nothing more, nothing less. Our faith in Christ, it is what defines us, not our differences. And our faith is what unites us. It unites us to God and it unites us to each other as family in spite of our differences. And so Paul, he's going to begin this reflection uh, by, by restating his claim yet again with, in a different way here in, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 26, where he says, look down here with me. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Twelve words in the English, eleven words in the original Greek, and that is one power-packed statement, isn't it? This claim, it not only captures really the, the theme of the entire letter, the theme of the entire gospel, but it refutes everything that these fundamentalists, that these legalists came in teaching. Right? Only our faith in Jesus unites us in Christ and makes us family. And what's interesting about this claim is it is incredibly inclusive, isn't it, with respect to who it applies to. And yet at the same time, it's also extremely exclusive in terms of how it applies. And so I want us to look at this. We're going we're gonna to go through verse 26 here looking at kind of the, the who, what, where, when, why, and how. And then the rest of the passage, Paul kind of further unpacks some of that. And so again, verse 26, he says, For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. And so first, uh, let's look at the what. Because I think the what is really central to this entire claim. And that what here is that of sonship, right? Uh, to be sons of God. And, and at first, um, that kind of appears to be very exclusive gendered language, doesn't it? I like this idea of sonship, of, of sons of God. It feels... It feels a bit like Paul's just excluding half the population. He's excluding an entire gender as though maybe even union in Christ is not available to women. But like, we know that's not true, don't we? Amen? Just making sure. Um, we know that's not true because both men and women are, uh, we equally possess the Imago Dei. We are equally created in the image of God. We know that to be true. And so what some translations will do is they'll, they'll use more gender-inclusive language, applying uh, to all humankind. The NIV, for example, it translates this verse, so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. Now while I believe there are a number of places in Scripture where this inclusive method of translating uh, both the wording and the intent of the original Greek, I think it is both appropriate and accurate, this is not one of those places. And here's what I mean. While what the NIV translates, it is a true and accurate statement. Uh, in Christ Jesus, we are all children of God through faith. Um, both men and women, we are God's beloved children. We are accepted by God, adopted into his family as his sons and daughters. But that translation is incomplete. It's missing Paul's intent here. And here's what I mean. Uh, sonship. To be a father's son 
it, it conveys something far more than just being his male child. It means being his heir. And so 2,000 years ago, remember, Paul didn't write this to us, did he? Now, he wrote this to people 2,000 years ago in a different time, in a different culture. And in that very patriarchal, cultural context in which this letter was written, only a son would ever be identified as a father's heir. Only a son would ever receive an inheritance, inheriting his father's estate. Never a daughter, only ever a son. And what Paul's doing here, he's continuing this theme of inheritance that he began last week that we saw. And so what I need us to see is that we lose some of this in the NIV's translation. We, we lose it if we translate son as child. Because see, what Paul's claim here, the sonship, the, to be a son of God, it not only conveys our status as God's child and the intimacy that comes along with it that we're going to look at in a bit in verse 6, but also the status of an heir, inheritance that comes with it that we're going to look at in verse 29. Does that make sense? All right, see, when we, when we isolate words and verses from their context, from their, their context in Scripture and their context in culture, when we, when we do that and when we only ever allow for the kind of, quote, clear, simple, literal reading of the English text, we're prone to miss the author's intent. See, while Paul's language, it appears exclusive, doesn't it? His claim even appears almost chauvinistic in a way. But when we read the statement in its original context, the context of its culture, the context of this passage, of this letter, of the whole of Scripture, I think we begin to see just how radically inclusive this claim is and how truly egalitarian the language is. Tim Keller, he writes, if we don't let Paul call Christian women sons of God, we miss how radical and wonderful a claim this is. Because look at who this claim is for. Look at who this says this status of sonship is offered to. It is offered to all. You are all, both men and women, sons of God. Both, both children in God's family and heirs of God's promised inheritance. And Paul here, he's claiming something truly unfathomable, absolutely unthinkable in this first century culture. And to some, 2,000 years later in our own day, it's unthinkable. Right? He's showing how contrary to culture Christianity really is by showing how inclusive, even egalitarian it is. Right? God's inheritance, it is extended to everyone, not just men, everyone. His intimacy is available to anyone. And what I love is it's not something that's available later in the future that we have to wait for. No, it is available now in the present because when we look at the when, what we see is that it is already for those to whom he is writing, right? You are already sons of God. There's no probationary waiting period that they had to go through. Right? When you start a new job, you got to wait like 90 days before you actually get any health benefits. Right? You don't have to do that with this. There's no more hoops to jump through. There's nothing else you need to do other than faith in Christ. And so already, their status as children, their status as heirs was secured. But where do they find this inheritance? Where do they find this intimacy? 
Well, he says here it can only be found in Christ, right? It's only found in Christ. And last week, we, we, we kind of began to see the, the beauty and the blessing of our union in Christ, right? What it means to be in Christ, right? To be incorporated into him uh, as his body, in his body, and not just, not just symbolically, but spiritually. Uh, Dr. Scott McKnight, in his commentary, writes, uh, to be in Christ is to be in spiritual fellowship with him through God's Spirit. Well, that's the where, but then how does this happen? How do we arrive there? Well, he says that the how is through faith, right? Here we begin to see the exclusive nature of the how. The who was inclusive, the how is exclusive. Because, right, Jesus, remember he said, uh, Jesus didn't declare himself to be one of many ways to God, did he? No, he declared himself to be the singular exclusive way. And that his words are truth and that his way leads to life. And this acceptance is family, this inheritance is an heir. It can only be found in Christ through faith in Jesus as the Christ, as the promised Messiah, as our Savior who grants forgiveness of our sins, as our King in whom we worship, as our Lord in whom we surrender our lives to. For in Christ Jesus, you are all, 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 all sons of God through faith. Do we get that? All. Raise your hand if you're here. All. Even if you didn't raise your hand. I know you all don't like it when I do that. <laughs> it was DST last night. We lost an hour of sleep. We need to do a little bit of calisthenics halfway through. We're not halfway through. I shouldn't have said that. How do we then, what do we do then with this? How do we, how do we express this union that we have in Christ? How do we, how do we declare our faith? How do, we, how do we make it known, so to speak? Like we get, a, we get a billboard, we have a party, what do we do? Well, he says in verse 27, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Right? Baptism, that's, that's the thing. What is baptism? Because I think we probably all come from various backgrounds, various uh, faith traditions, and, and so what is baptism? Well, baptism is one of two uh, sacraments or ordinances, the other being the Lord's Supper or communion, that were instituted or, or put in place by Jesus and practiced by the church. And, and Jesus, just before his ascension in Matthew 28, he, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus says jump, we jump, don't we? Right? So that's what we do. We make disciples. We baptize. But let's be, let's be clear. Baptism is not what saves you. Right? Baptism is not why God accepts you. Right? Baptism was never intended as this religious ritual that wash, literally washes away your sin. Rather, Calvin, John Calvin, he, he defines sacraments in his Institutes of the Christian Religion as this. He defines them as an external sign by which the Lord seals on our conscience his promises of goodwill toward us. Right? They are signs and they are seals. 
This washing of water, it is an external sign symbolizing our dying to our old self as we are put into the water and our, our birth, our new birth and a new self as we come out of the water along with Christ's resurrection out of the tomb. Therefore, sealing what has already previously taken place, our, that being our union in Christ through faith. And through this, we, we put on, we, we clothe ourselves in Christ, with Christ. And this second part here is, is likely an allusion to how the early church conducted baptisms. Uh, and they, they almost exclusively did baptisms on, on Easter Sunday. And um, here's how they did baptisms. And I want to stress the they part in what I'm about to share with you. They, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, uh, the first step was um, you had to remove all your clothes. So they were like skinny dipping for baptism. Okay, so they removed their clothes. Then what they did is they would get in the tub. Also, by the way, like the women got baptized over here, and the guys got baptized over here. They weren't together. And then they would, they would dip them into the water, and then they would bring them up out of the water, symbolizing Christ's death and resurrection. And then after that, what they would do is they would wrap this white robe around them, this white cloth. White, representing Christ's purity, representing his righteousness. And by putting on and clothing yourself in Christ, you are, in some sense, identifying with him. Right? It's sort of like um, if you got like a Bulls jersey or a Bears jersey, and if you got a Cleo Mack jersey, I'm sorry, it's been a rough week for you. You got to get a new Bears jersey. Um, Matt got traded this week, for those of you that weren't following. But uh, you, you wear your favorite player's jersey identifying with him, right? Identifying with, with their team. And that's, that's kind of what we, they were doing by robing themselves in this white robe. They were identifying with him, but they were also imitating him, right? They're wanting to be more like him. It's sort of like when you were a kid, if you had an older sibling or, or, or an older uh, person in school that you looked up to, you were like, I want to wear what they're wearing. And that's what we're doing here. We're imitating Christ. We're putting on him. And when we look through the book of Acts, right, we read story after story after story of people hearing about Jesus and then putting their faith in Jesus, right, and responding to their union in Christ by, by being baptized in Christ almost immediately, right? Peter goes out and he preaches on Pentecost Sunday, and immediately 3,000 people put their faith in Christ, and they line up for baptisms, Right? Uh, uh, Philip, he, he's walking along and he, he sees this Ethiopian eunuch coming along and he's reading Isaiah. He's got no idea what he's talking about. Isaiah's got some rough parts. Amen? And, uh, and so he comes alongside and he helps show him that like, this whole thing is pointing to, to Jesus, to Christ, the Messiah. And, and this Ethiopian eunuch's like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. I believe. He puts his faith in Jesus and he's like, we got to go find some water in the middle of the desert because I got to be baptized right now. Story after story after story of people making their faith visible so that it could be seen by others, making it, their faith public so that it could be known by others. And I want to pause here for a moment and ask a question. If you're here this morning and you've put your faith in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as your Lord and Savior and King, you, you are a follower of Jesus and you've not yet been baptized. Why is that? Why is that? What is it that you're waiting on? 
What is it that you're waiting to happen? What is it that you think still needs to happen? And I'm going to give you the answer while you're thinking about the answer. And the answer is nothing. There's nothing else that needs to happen. And, and when you get to that point that you can't answer the question, that you're like, Pastor Ash, I, I, don't, I don't have an answer for why. Man, what I'd love for you to do is when we fill out that info card at the end of service, when Pastor Rob's up here cracking jokes, fill out that info card and check that box that says, I want to be baptized. That I want to make my faith public. I want to make my faith visible. I'd love to invite you to do that. And uh, man, let's do it on Easter. Let's follow the example of the early church and let's fill that thing up and, uh, and let's do some baptisms on Easter, amen? That sound good? Yeah? Uh, that's where the uh, commonality with the early church ends, just so we're all clear. Like, we're going to do it fully clothed. And here's the other good news in case like, you're like, Pastor Ash, the reason I'm waiting is because I heard the baptismal water is really cold. Well, we got a new heater. Now, it's not hooked up yet. We got some electrical issues. We're working through them. Pretty hoping we're praying. You know how we prayed the other day for the heat system? And like the next week, it was like a billion degrees in here because we replaced the door. Pray for the heater, for the baptisms, for Easter Sunday, and for people to check that box to be baptized. Let's be praying for those that are here right now that, let's be honest, you're a little bit nervous about getting up in front of this crew, aren't you? And it's okay. We're going we're gonna to make that faith public. We're going to make that faith visible. And what I need you to know, what I need us all to know, whether you don't know it, whether we've forgotten it, this, this union in Christ, this invitation into God's family as his child, this inheritance of God's promises as his heir, what I need you to know is it is available to anyone. The invitation is not exclusive. It's available to anyone, right? When Paul says all, he means all. There is no asterisk. There's no footnote next to that word. And he goes on to say in verse 28, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a big verse right there. Um, because see, biases and prejudices, they, they, are, they run rampant today, don't they? But they always have. They've always existed. If we go back into Paul's day, uh, Jewish men of that time, they would pray to God every day, thanking God that they were not born a foreigner, right? that they were not a Greek, that they were not a Gentile from outside the lineage of Abraham. They thank God that they were not a foreigner. They would thank God that they were not a slave, and they would thank God that they were not born a woman. And what they were doing is they were basing human beings and individuals value and their worth as a human, as an individual, they were basing their value and worth on their cultural distinctions, on their social and class distinctions, and on their gender distinctions, right? Culturally, they, these Jewish Christians that came in, they were requiring these Greek, these Gentile men to be circumcised, to become more Jewish in order to be accepted. They did this socially. Uh, slaves in this time, they were, they were viewed as a lower subclass of citizen, of human being. And then sexually, women were viewed as inferior, with next to no legal standing in this culture. And, and what they did was they allowed their distinctions, 
driven by their supremacy, driven by their bigotry, driven by their misogyny to divide what Christ had united. You see, it was, it was unthinkable. It was even offensive to even think about a slave or a Gentile being called a son of God, same as a woman. But what Paul says is in Christ, through faith in Christ, we are all one. We are one body. We are all sons of God. And that means we are of equal value and equal worth, bearing the image of God and standing before God, equal, one, united in Christ. And as I say that, please don't hear what Paul's not saying. I think we're, we're good at that, aren't we? We're good at inserting other words sometimes that we didn't hear. Paul is not erasing our distinctives or our differences here, right? Paul's not eliminating unique expressions of culture, right? Of language and food and clothing and music and art and hair and all that go into culture. He's not erasing that. He's not eliminating that. If anything, when we, we look at the book of Revelation, uh, the apostle John, he paints a picture in Revelation 7 of, of those things lasting on into eternity, Right, as people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language standing before the throne, worshiping together. Cultures coming together, not being eliminated. But he's also not endorsing slavery here. Let's not read that into it. What he's saying, though, is that social class, your status, your economic status, it does not define your value or worth as a human being. And then third, he's also not eradicating gender distinctions. He's not promoting some androgynous society void of our sexuality. Right? Because think about it. Our sexuality, our gender, it is, a, it is given to us by God, isn't it? Right? God created us male and female, both in his image. And he called that not just good, but very good. Right? And, and, and as Genders coming together, we, we, we complement one another. We, we serve one another. Paul even says in Ephesians 5.21 that we, we mutually submit to one another out of our reverence for Christ. British New Testament scholar James, uh, James Dunn, he, he writes some of the most beautiful words about this. He, he says, our union in Christ should be seen not as a leveling and abolishing of all racial, social, or gender differences, but as an integration of just such differences into a common participation in Christ, wherein they enhance rather than detract from the unity of the body and enrich the mutual interdependence and service of its members. In other words, it is a oneness, a singularity, because such differences cease to be a barrier and cause of pride or regret or embarrassment and become rather a means to display the diverse richness of God's creation and grace, both in the acceptance of the all and in the gifting of each. There is incredible beauty in the gift of our God-given diversity, isn't there? Amen? There is beauty in our diversity. We've not been called to erase it, but to embrace it. And yet there's no shortage of ways that we allow our differences to divide, are there? Um, 
I, I wonder if Paul were writing this today, what this list might look like. Because I think there's a whole host of additional things that could be added uh, of differences that we allow to divide what Christ has united. And the first that comes to mind, I think, I think the obvious one is that uh, I think he would say that there's neither black nor white, right? And by this, if we go back to what we talked about, by saying that, like we're not calling for colorblindness, right? Because all that does is that he erases our racial distinctions. And, and by doing that, that erases our uh, the, the stories, that erases the struggles, that erases the, the history, the history of our nation, the history of our, of our church. He's not calling us to erase, he's calling us to embrace, right? Embracing each other regardless of our race, regardless of our ethnicity as family, listening to each other's stories, understanding each other's struggles, and acknowledging the history as dark as it may be. Make sense? There's neither black nor white. There's neither Republican or Democrat, right? There's no Christian party. There's neither citizen or immigrant, regardless of how they came, regardless of status, legal status. There is neither abled or disabled, and yet I think our buildings oftentimes present barriers. There's neither homeowner nor renter nor homeless. There's not even married or single in Christ. There's not biological parents, adoptive parents, or not a parent. And those, hear me, those distinctions continue to exist. You don't cease to be a parent in Christ. You don't cease to be married or single in Christ. But those differences, they do not define us, do they? They do not define us, and they, Paul says, dare not divide us. Because in Christ, through faith in Christ, we are all one. We are all sons of God. Can I get a big amen there? And then he kind of recaps again here in verse 29. He's like, I just want to make sure you get the point here. He says in verse 29, and if you are Christ, if you are in Christ through faith, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to promise. Sonship, this idea of being a son of God, it was something that God originally bestowed upon Abraham's biological offspring, right? In Exodus 4, we see God tell Moses uh, to go back to Egypt, to return to Egypt. And when he does, he's going to have to face Pharaoh. And he says, I want, here's what I want you to say to Pharaoh. He says, thus saith the Lord. Sometimes the King James is just way better, isn't it? <laughs> thus saith is way better than thus says. Thus saith the Lord. I don't know if God said it that way. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. Israel was this first status of sonship. And then we see in 2 Samuel 7, as we flip a few pages, God, he, he focuses that sonship now on an offspring of David. And he says, I will be to him, this offspring of David, a father, and he shall be to me a son. And then when we flip a few more pages to Matthew 3 and the story of Jesus' baptism, what we see is we see the Spirit of God descend like a dove and, and rest on him. And then a voice from heaven, and I got to imagine this was a boomer of a voice. This is like, remember Earl when he would do scripture reading? That's how I want you to hear this when I read it in my non-Earl voice. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God was declaring that the son had arrived. 
And now, through faith, this status of sonship, this inheritance as an heir of God's promises, this intimacy as a child in God's family, it was now available to anyone. It was extended to everyone in Christ. By our union in Christ, incorporated into His body through faith. Inclusive in the who, exclusive in the how. But by being inclusive in the who, it was no longer limited. It was no longer limited to a specific ethnic line or race or culture. It was no longer limited to a specific nation, a specific social class, or to a gender. And he goes on to kind of clarify this here using an an illustration here. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me here at the beginning of chapter 4. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, he's no different from a slave. No, he's the owner of everything. He's already the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Heirs in this culture, as long as they were a child, as long as they were a minor, uh, they had no access to their promised inheritance that the father would leave them, not yet, even though they already legally owned it. It was kind of like, uh, it's kind of like a trust fund kid who had no access to his trust fund. Uh, I don't know what that's like, but I'm assuming that's what you hear from Hollywood, that type of thing. Uh, sort of like, oh, man. Um, that was really insulting if you have a trust fund. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. Rewind. But even though they already owned this inheritance, they were, they were effectively no different from a slave in that point because they owned it, but they didn't possess it. And what he's doing here, he's illustrating and referring to the nation of Israel here, right? To the Jewish people, the biological descendants of Abraham, these heirs of God's promises. But Israel as a people had not yet come of age. They were still children under the care of a guardian, a a pedagogue, right? We talked about this last week, right? This this babysitter that wealthy uh, Greek families would hire to watch over and protect and discipline their children. And what we know from last week and this week's passage, the Mosaic Law, it was that guardian that enslaved them, that watched over them until finally their coming of age. And that's what we read in verses 4 and 5. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, meaning he was born into the Jewish family to redeem those who were under the law. So that we, the Jewish people, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Through Jesus, God redeemed his people from slavery to the law. And through Jesus, he adopted them as sons. And this was true for for Paul, for the Jewish people, the the we here, who, who like Abraham, believed God who believed through faith, were incorporated into Christ, experiencing all the blessings of sonship. That was true of of those of, of Jewish heritage. And now through Jesus, that sonship, it is extended to everyone, available to everyone. He says in verse six, he says, and because you now, because you, the Gentiles, because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into all of our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Right now, anyone, anyone in Christ through faith can receive God's promised inheritance, right, as an heir. 
And that promised inheritance, as we saw last week, it, is, it was a family included into God's family. It was of land, not in the current creation, but in the new creation. And a blessing, the blessing of God's presence. His presence through the indwelling of His Spirit, He says, sent into our hearts. But not only do we receive His promised inheritance, we get to experience God's intimacy as His child crying, Abba, Father. Uh, addressing God, right, the creator and sustainer of the universe by the very same name that Jesus did as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was crucified, crying out in his humanity, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba was an Aramaic name that carried with it both affection and authority. It was both Papa and Daddy and Sir. Abba was a name that declares who God is and who we are in relation to God in Christ. And he concludes this beautiful passage in verse 7 saying, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's easy to read that verse, but it's also easy to believe the lie that that verse doesn't apply to you, doesn't it? It's easy to believe the lie that you're not enough like the others, that you just don't belong, that you're too different. The lie that says you're not good enough for God, that you are not enough for God. Thinking, you don't know what all I've done. Right? I have strayed too far for too long. I, I've doubted too much. I don't, I don't even know what I believe anymore. I, I, get, I get Jesus, but everything else just doesn't make sense. And, and some, of that, some of that is lies that the enemy is whispering in our ear. Right? This overwhelming sense of guilt that he wants you to feel. But some of that is also the result of things done to you the result of things said to you, the result of things said about you, residual hurt inflicted on you by others. And what is so painful is how often that residual hurt was inflicted by others in the church. Those that were supposed to be your family, those that were supposed to be your brothers and sisters, maybe even a pastor, People that you trusted, people that you thought were safe, that loved you, that would protect you, ended up hurting you, telling you, you are not enough. You don't look the right way. You don't speak the right way. You don't think the right way. You don't live the right way. You are not enough. And you are not welcome here. You do not belong here. And like somewhere along the way, we got it in our head that we... We became God's self-appointed bouncers, didn't we? Church is like a club, and we're out front standing at the door. We're the bouncers. We're holding a clipboard. As people walk in the parking lot, we're like looking them down, aren't we? But here's the thing, our clipboard, rather than a list of names, we got a list of characteristics on it. We got a list of characteristics on our clipboard. And, and we decide who we are going to let in, who are we are going to accept, and who it is that we're going to keep out. And, and this list, it describes the type of person that we're going to decide to accept and the type of person that we're going to welcome into God's family and the type that we're going to keep out. 
And anyone who doesn't look enough like us, anyone who doesn't line up enough with us, anyone who makes us feel the slightest bit uncomfortable based on the way they look, based on the way they dress, based on the way they behave, based on the way they worship. Maybe they're a little too free for you. Maybe they're dancing in the aisle and that makes you feel uncomfortable. Maybe based on the way they talk, based on their story, based on their struggle, based on their sin, maybe based on their smell, I don't know, based on something like we stop them at the door and we don't let them in. You are not welcome here. And man, if we had to abide by our own set of rules and regulations, I don't think we would be welcome here, would we? I know I wouldn't be. And so what I want to see as we close this morning is that, is that rather than pointing people to Jesus when we do this, all we end up doing is pushing people away from Jesus. We're pushing people away from Jesus, preventing them from encountering Jesus. We're preventing them from experiencing what it is that we do this morning, hearing each other's voices and how beautiful that was to listen to, seeing each other, being in each other's presence and being in the presence of God. We push people away from that and we prevent people from experiencing that. And you know, um, the disciples did the same thing, didn't they? They were guilty of doing the same thing because see, they were acting like bouncers for Jesus. They might have had t-shirts made up, bouncers for Jesus, I don't know. And what they did, Jesus, I don't know, just to kind of like summarize the gospel stories, Jesus kind of became a celebrity. He, uh, he turned some water into wine. He, he healed some people that they weren't going to be healed in any other way. He, he cast out demons, put them in some pigs, and the pigs ran over a cliff. That was a pretty cool story. He, he fed thousands of people with next to nothing. It's like a little kid gave him his happy meal and he fed thousands of people. And word spread. Jesus was a celebrity. People flocked to him. All people flocked to him. And, and there's one story where the disciples, they were rebuking the parents of these little kids because what the parents were doing is they were, they were bringing their kids up and wanting the kids to sit on Jesus' lap like he was Santa Claus. They're like, there's something about this Jesus guy and I want my kid to get to meet him because he seems pretty cool. And you know what the disciples did? They rebuked the parents. They're like, get these kids out of here. And you know what Jesus did? He rebuked them, but he rebuked them in the Jesus way. Tone's been a big topic of discussion, I think, the past few weeks in, in some circles. And, and I love the tone of Jesus. Jesus didn't yell at them. He didn't belittle them. He didn't shame them. No, he, he just said, no, no, no. Hey, guys, let them come. Let the little ones come to me. Don't hinder them. You know why? Because for, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He was saying years before Paul wrote, like, there's neither adult nor child because we're all one in Christ. Amen? Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how young you are, doesn't matter if you're still in the womb. Guys, we are not the gatekeepers. We are not the bouncers that get to determine who is and who is not admitted into God's family. God does that. And I think what happened is we've forgotten why it is that Jesus came. Jesus came, if we read the Gospels, to heal the sick. He came to give sight to the blind. He came to liberate the press because, he, he says himself, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick 
They need me. They recognize their need for me. And we are all infected with a sickness of sin, aren't we? Sin that only Christ can forgive. And so just as Jesus, as he calls he calls the sick and the poor to him. He calls the tired and the hungry, the weak and the weary. He calls them to himself to be his own, to find rest in him as we reflected before we worship this morning. We, as his followers, we are called to do the same, welcoming all those who hunger and thirst, no matter their story, no matter their struggle, no matter their sin, pointing them to Jesus, helping them to know Jesus and to grow to be more like Jesus, right? Pointing people to Jesus. How? By loving like Jesus so that they can be welcomed into God's family, into our family. This messed up, crazy, weird family that's in this room right now together. Yeah, I was talking about us. Not just you, but us. I'm in that too. Inviting more people into this family uh, of not just a redemption, not just Little C Church, but the Big C Church, into the family of God, united by our faith in Christ. And I, I, I want us to take just a little tiny step after service is over today. Pastor Rob's going to remind you about it later on, but um, I want to encourage each and every one of you, and this is going to get real, some of you aren't going to like me for a second. I want you to meet someone new to you today after service. And remember, new to you, if you don't know their name and you don't remember their name, they're new to you. Chances are there's someone here whose name you don't remember or you don't know. Either that or you've got an incredible memory and you need to be on the welcome team. I want you to meet someone new to you and I want you to remember who it is that you are here, right? If, if this is your church home, this is the place that you worship. And, and, and we are your church family, we are the people you worship with, then hear me say, you are a host. This is your home, this is your family. And as hosts, we welcome our guests, don't we? Let's make this a place to belong. Let's make this a place where we point people to Jesus, amen? Let's make this a place where we are helping more people know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus. That is our mission, that is why we exist. I'm pretty sure I'm out of time. And I really don't care. <laughs> even though I got my Oscar music. So let's do this. Let's pray, and then let's break some bread together. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.